So open your Bible to John 17. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one of the black Bibles you'll see under the chairs. Open that up. I want to get you in the habit, if you don't have your own, you can keep that as a matter of fact, but we want to get you in the habit of opening it, looking at it, examining it. Uh, we want you to evaluate what you hear here based on what you read in this text. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we want to spend time every week listening, looking, studying. This week we're in John 17 and we're calling it the growth of glory. The growth of glory. Uh, a lot of uh, historians, a lot of theologians call this Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, now the, the word high priest doesn't appear there, but, but what they mean is Jesus is interceding for God's people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to listen in on a prayer of Jesus where he's purposefully praying so that his disciples can hear him and it's written down so that we can hear it as well so we can understand what is the priority of Jesus. And what you're going to see again and again in this prayer is his priority is God's glory. And God's glory is glowing and radiating through Jesus' glory. So now we've got to define glory. What does glory mean? Glory in the Old Testament primarily was a word that meant heaviness or substantialness. And so we use words in our language like awesome, great, big, you know. It's like something being really intense. So God has this intense weight to him that far exceeds anything any human being has, right? Another word that's often paired with that word for heaviness, glory, in the Old Testament is the word light, and so that's another aspect of God's glory. And, and the Greek word for glory has, has more of that concept kind of built into it. So you kind of got two words that, that both mean basically the otherness and awesomeness of God. So there's like light, radiance, beauty, and then there's heaviness and substantialness and bigness, right? Both of those conceptual frameworks encompass glory. And, and Jesus' priority is that this glory would spread. He doesn't want to just hold on to their glory they want to multiply their glory. That's what we see in the, the movement of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How many of you uh, have lived here more than six months? Raise your hands if you've lived here more than six months. Okay, about a third of us, all right? So those of you that have lived here more than six months, you can remember a time when Bell County didn't have very much water, right? Those of you that have just been here the last six months, you're like, wow, everything's green. This is a really lush place. It's not always like this, people, okay? It is not always like this. Usually mid-July, the grass is already brown, right? The trees are starting to die. Things are pretty dry mid-July. But right now, we've got more water than we've ever had, and it's just an abundance, right? And so what we're seeing in your yard or like in my house, I, I planted a live oak tree a few years ago, a little baby live oak tree. It kind of just slowly grew Year after year, a little bit more, a little bit more. This year, I feel like it's doubled in size, right? There's been so much water. It's just spreading and spreading. We see this in the natural world. We see when there's water, plant life will spread. Things will flourish. And that's a parallel to what Jesus is praying here. He's praying that God's glory would spread. There would be more life and more life. That is Jesus' prayer, and that's what we want to be about here as well. So let's read the text. We're going to read John 17, verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we pray for your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to your word. We pray that we would not merely gather more information from your word, but that it would transform us, that you would be glorified, that your glory would grow and spread by your word, by your spirit, through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So glory is substantial, heavy weightiness, right? Glory is also radiance, beauty, brightness, the light of God himself. And we're going to see three ways that God's glory is, is going to grow. It's going to spread. The first thing that we're going to see is that God's glory is found in the Trinity itself, in, in the inner Trinitarian love that existed before the world began. We saw that in verse 5. It said, return me to that glory we had before the world existed. So we're going to kind of try to ponder some, some big stuff, right? So prepare to have your minds blown a little bit, right? That there are things that happened before we existed and it was glorious in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we're going to look at the idea that there's also glory that is going to spread and is going to be seen through the cross itself. Repeated phrase throughout John is the hour. The hour has come. And that signifies the time for Jesus to die and rise from the dead. And so we want to focus on that, that God's glory is seen through the cross itself. And then finally, we're going to kind of tease out an idea that we'll have to hit more of next week, that John 17, kind of the rest of the focus of John 17 is going to dwell on. And that's the glory of God's people, which sounds almost sacrilegious to say, but God glorifies himself through his people, that he sends into the world the same way he sent Jesus into the world. So we're going to see glory in the Trinity, the cross, and God's people. First, we want to look at this glory in the Trinity itself. And so the Trinity is the way we describe this unity and diversity that exists in God himself. So God is one God and three persons. God is one what and three whose. So different ways to kind of memorize that. As a pastor, it's a, it's a tricky thing, and so I'm always kind of real careful when I start talking about the Trinity because it's a hard thing to understand. So God existed from eternity past, Jesus is saying, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's this glory in that love. And so the first thing I want to point out is the love that the Trinity had. It says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. We'll stop there. Father. We can skip over that because we're just used to it, right? Christian tradition, 2,000 years of Christendom and Western civilization. No big deal to pray Father, right? Because Jesus taught us to pray Father. But that was something Jesus had to teach us. It's not something we did apart from him. Now, the Old Testament referred to God as a father. Like that, that concept was there. So how come people didn't use it? The concept was there. It, it occurred two or three times in the Old Testament. 
but people never referred to God as Father. Number one, we need to understand, it's not Father, really. It's more like Daddy. More like Papa, right? Dad. Father sounds a little formal in our culture. Usually, most Americans I know, and I know it's different from place to place and and region to region, most Americans I know refer to their father in the third person as father, but talk to their father as dad, right? So there's like a closeness you use that's different from how you'd refer to them. And so father doesn't really do it justice. It's daddy, it's papa, the the Aramaic term is Abba. So it's this closeness that felt sacrilegious to the first century Jews. They felt like that's too close. Now, do we want to understand God as holy and other and glorious? Yes, for sure. But the cross brings us close to him so that we can pray daddy. And so we see Jesus praying this way, and we know Jesus taught us to pray this way as well. And so this points to this love, this closeness that is found in the Trinity. Other pointers to the, cro- the closeness are the words one and oneness, right? That appears again and again. So we've got him praying, Father, there's love there, there's closeness there, and the, they're one, there's oneness they talk about, and the glory, the Father's glorifying the Son, the Son's glorifying the Father, right? So all these things point to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being close. And this is a really, really amazing idea, right? We... We come from a community of love. I don't, I don't know who taught me this or when I was, was taught this, some Sunday school teacher or something, but y'all probably heard stuff like this. I was taught at some point that God created me or humanity because he was lonely. Have y'all ever heard stuff like that? Um, not evil. I'm not, I don't want to beat you up if you just told your five-year-old that yesterday. Don't feel too bad. But I don't think it's exactly right. God didn't create us out of his loneliness. God didn't create us out of his lack. God created us out of the overflow of his glory. God created us out of the overflow of his love. We come from this perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. It says in verse 5, can't find it here, where is it? Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There was this perfect glory that the Trinity enjoyed before the world existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is returning to that. Now Philippians 2 describes the process, right? Philippians 2 talks about Jesus being with the Father in eternity past, having that glory, giving up that glory to come to earth and be a human and live as a peasant and live you know, as a baby and then grow up and So there was a sense that he kind of gave up that glory of being in the presence of the Father, became obedient unto death, became a servant to us all. That's what Philippians 2 describes. And then God exalted him back to that place of glory again. So this is what Jesus is referring to. But but again, what it points to is this this idea, our idea of God as we come from, we're created out of this beauty and this glory. There's a glory in the Trinity itself. Now, I I hope that's helpful to you. I think just believing that translates into a sense of security and wonder. It points to the gospel itself, that we are loved, right? And so us not being in communion with the Father, us not calling God Daddy and feeling close to Him is because of what the Scriptures describe in Genesis where it says Adam and Eve left that perfect fellowship. They broke it, we, and we all with them, right? We've run away from that love. And so the reason we don't have that closeness with the Trinity now is because we fled from it. And that's what Genesis describes. And so I grabbed a picture here of a mom and dad and baby. Um, There's this thing that psychologists talk about a lot that 
if your kid knows that mommy and daddy love each other, that gives them a tremendous leg up in the world. Now, if you're like me, you didn't grow up in a home like that, right? And so that, that caused some, some fear, some instability. But this is an amazing gift that we can give to our kids, right? It's an amazing present. And here's just a little aside on parenting. Parents, right? Don't make your children the son of your solar system, okay? They can't bear that weight. Your, your life can't revolve around your children. That's not healthy for them. Make your marriage, if, if you're married, I know not everybody is, but if, if you're married, if you're still together, make that love you have between husband and wife the center of your family's universe so that your children are loved out of that love. See, that's the kind of movement we see in the Trinity itself. We see that we come from the glory of the Trinity. We, we were created out of that overflow. There's a book I've been recommending again and again. I want to recommend it one more time. We're almost done with the John series, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's really helpful. It's only 130 pages long. I'm going to throw it down here so y'all can look at it after the service, but don't steal it. It's got all my underlines in special places, right? Um, but order that book. I want to highly recommend it to you. So it's, it's deep theology. It's hard for us to understand. Even as a pastor, I've been trained how to talk about this. I still stumble over my words. Like, how do, how do I talk about this? Like this love that God has within himself from eternity past, right? And this does a great job helping us to understand that and helping us to delight in it, right? Helping us to find joy in the love that God has always had within himself. J.I. Packer says this as he describes the love that the Father has for the Son and for us as his children. J.I. Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. This thought should prompt and control all of our worship. This is from one of his famous books, Knowing God. Saying if we really know God as Father, then we really understand Christianity. If we really know him as a loving father, and, and another aside here, some of you didn't know your earthly father is a loving father, so this can be a stumbling block to you. But I just want to kind of help you on this journey. You know if your father wasn't a loving father because you intuitively know what a loving father should have been like. And God is the one that is the loving father. He's the one that defines what that looks like. And through Jesus, you can know him as that loving father. So you can believe this. You can believe that God created you out of love and you can believe that Jesus is restoring you to that place of love so that you can pray in the father's name. You can pray daddy. You can pray Abba. You can pray Papa. You can see him as close to you and loving you and, and really mean it and pray in that way. There's some prayer guides that we're going to be passing out in the next few weeks and just want to encourage you to take these up and start making prayer more of a habit you have. This is out in the brochure rack as well. It says targeted prayers, ways that you can pray for the church and the community. Um, but the primary thing I want you to understand here is what Jesus taught us to pray, Father. Pray, Father. He loves you. Do you believe that? Do you understand that God loves you? Or do you see him as someone who's holding out on you or is disappointed with you or is angry with you? Through the cross, we begin to understand that God really loves us. So I want to move on to the next point because this is really, this is the mechanism that makes all this work, the glory of the cross. The way we can really be restored to the fellowship and love that existed in the Trinity in eternity past is through the cross. So we are created out of God's love, out of his overflow of glory, out of his desire to give more to the world, out of his glory to um, glorify himself through humanity that he made in his image. We broke that. That was the plan we broke it through our sin and rebellion. We said, no, I want to go the other way. 
And so he enacted this rescue mission. We summarize with the words, the cross. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he died the sacrificial death that we deserve to die. He took our place as a substitute, as the sacrificial lamb, to cleanse us and to purify us and to take away our sin. And he did not stay in the grave, but he rose from the grave, proving that he's conquered sin and death for us. That is the summary of what Jesus accomplished in the cross. I grabbed a picture here of a sacrificial lamb. We're told in Hebrews that all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were merely pictures. They were flannel graph and cartoons that pointed to our need of a perfect sacrifice. But Jesus actually was the perfect sacrifice. And so there's this phrase that occurs again and again throughout John. It's the hour has come. What does that phrase mean? It means the cross. Again, a summary of everything. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's ascended now with the Father. It means all of that, right? But specifically the, the cross. He's saying, my hour has come. He introduces this language in John chapter 12, kind of the beginning of the series we're in. It's now the last week of his life. He's coming in during Passover time, the time to offer the sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so last week of his life, he comes into Jerusalem. and is like, here I am. My hour has come. The time has come. So he says it this way. We'll, we'll back up and read verse 1 again. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, that phrase, I glorified you on earth, he's speaking in past tense, I glorified you on earth, I've done everything you've given me to do. It's a grammatical phrase called proleptic. Um, and what that means, it's a big weird word we don't use in everyday life, but what it means is when you're speaking about something as present and there's parts of it that are still future, right? So he's kind of speaking about everything God gave him to do. He's like, I've done it. Well, you know, I still got a couple more days. You know, he's still going to die and rise from the dead, but he's speaking in general about all that God had given him to do. He's done, right? So that's called proleptic. It's kind of including the future pieces in the parts of the whole. And so his hour has come, which means his death and resurrection. And he's saying, I've done everything you've given me to do. I've glorified you through my life, through my death and resurrection, through everything you've assigned to me, Father. I've fulfilled it. And he uses this phrase, eternal life, and connects it to knowing God. Did you see that? Eternal life is to know God. And so if you know God through Jesus, through what he's done through the cross, then you've begun eternal life now. You and I, we're still waiting for all, all sin to be wiped away. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease, right? We're still waiting for the completion that Romans 8 talks about, that tension that we live in, that it's not completely finished yet, but we now have begun eternal life through seeing Jesus through the cross. Again, in chapter 12, there's parallel language where these Greeks come up to one of Jesus' disciples and they're like, hey, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And then there's this funny kind of, it seems like a non sequitur. It seems like Jesus doesn't respond directly to what they say. They say, we want to see Jesus. And he says that my hour has come and God's going to be glorified through his death. That's how Jesus responds. And so when we're looking at John 12, what we said is we haven't really seen Jesus unless we've understood his death and resurrection for us, right? But let me put it this way. If you think Jesus is just another guru, just another teacher, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you're interested. 
But the Christian belief is that you don't actually understand who Jesus is unless you understand his death and resurrection, unless you understand the cross. That's the glory of the cross. We see the radiance, the beauty, the weightiness, the awesomeness of God through the glory of what he's done for us through the cross. That's the message that Jesus wants us to understand here. So we have eternal life by knowing God through Christ. And knowing, it's another word that we trip over because we're modern people. Knowing for us often means a fact that we could regurgitate on a test, right? That's usually how we use the word knowing. But in the Bible, both in Hebrew and in Greek, knowing means something more like being intimately acquainted with, right? Knowing means something more like loving. So the scripture talks about a husband knowing his wife, and it means the intimacy of a, of a husband and wife. And that's different than like something I fill out with the number two pencil on a Scantron sheet, right? Like those are different kinds of knowing, but we, we tend to veer off towards like facts. I have facts about God. So he, he's not saying, do you have the facts about God? Another way we say this is mental assent. I went a long time saying, okay, well, I, I mean, I, I know Jesus was real and he died on the cross. I guess I'm saved. But I didn't love Jesus. And God had to work on my heart to where I came to a point where I actually loved Jesus, where I actually wanted what Jesus was offering to me. My heart was moved. Have you been moved to that place yet? So that if you, you've begun to enjoy eternal life by knowing God in the biblical sense of having an intimate Love for God through the cross. Understanding that he's given himself for you. Another cross reference is John 10. Uh, I'll just throw this one out to you. This is when he's talking about being a good shepherd. If you remember John 10, he talks about the good shepherd. And he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So again, he's inviting us back into the glory that the Trinity had before the world began. We were created to have this perfect fellowship with God. This perfect community of love creates humanity and says, let's uh, reflect each other's glory. Let's love each other. Let's enjoy each other. And humanity says, no, I don't want you. I just want to take the blessings of creation, but I want to separate from a relationship with you. That's plunge the world into death and darkness and pain. We call that sin. But Jesus says, I know my own. My own know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. So we know him and we have eternal life because he's laid down his life for us. Have you come to understand God in that way? Are you just kind of a cultural Christian? I believe the facts. I was born in America, so I'm a Christian. Are you someone who really knows your desperate need for God to forgive you through the death and resurrection of his only son? Those are two different categories. And I want to plead with you to come to know Jesus in this more serious way so he's talking about the hours come i'm glorifying you i've done everything you've given to me to do and he's talking about his perfect life his sacrificial death and his resurrection and so that leads us to say you know what let's structure our lives around that so i talked at the beginning uh we've we said we just really want to fo- refocus as a church as we reorganize around gathering are we gathering around this truth every week are we gathering around the reality that God loves us and we can see that and we can see his glory and his goodness through the cross. Our worship leader, Chris Webster, does a great job of picking songs and, and writing songs that reflect this reality of who God has revealed himself to be through the cross. I'm thankful for that. Uh, we, we every week have this time of, of confession and just remembering the cross. Every week we share communion to remember that Jesus gave himself for us. Every week we teach from the scriptures to remember how God has revealed himself 
as the, the lover of our soul, as the savior of our souls through the cross. So every week we're going to gather around these truths. We're going to make this central to who we are. And so I want to say, number one, hey, thank you. you. You've done step one. You've gathered with us, right? You're gathering around the cross. Whether you're a believer that's committed and says, I, I need more of Jesus. I already know he's my savior and I want to grow in my walk with him. Or you're just asking questions. You're not sure who he is. Either way, we're going to every week try to focus our gathering and our lives around the reality of the cross because we believe that's where we find eternal life. That's where real life is to be found in gathering around the cross. And then the second step we've talked about as we reorganize as a church is serving on these teams. So we've got these tables in the lobby because we're inviting you to serve because we believe this glory has to spread, right? We can't just hold on to it for ourselves. We've got to share it with other people. So we want to invite you to serve not because we're organized religion trying to manipulate people, right? It's because we believe Jesus loves us and we want other people to know that love. That's why we're inviting people to serve and, and join in this organization. That's why we're trying to reorganize. That's try, why we're trying to row in the same direction so we can share more of the glory of the cross with other people. Here's a quote I want to read from Paul. This is in 1 Corinthians 9 if you want to look it up later. Uh, I'm going to kind of paraphrase a little bit, but Paul says, though I am free from all, right? He says, I'm free, but I make myself a servant to all. This, this is how Paul saw his life's work and saw his ministry. I'm free from all, but I make myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those that are not under the law, I became as one that's not under the law to win those who are not under the law. He says, to the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So my question is, what step are you taking to give up your rights so that others can see the glory of the cross? And I hope you see how this is the pattern of a, what's sometimes called a cruciformed life, a cross-centered life. Jesus gave up his rights to share the love and glory of the Trinity with us. And then he says, come on, join me. Give up your rights. You're free, but we set aside those rights to serve others, to serve those that don't look like us or to serve those that don't think like us or to serve those that don't love the same things we love because we have this love to share. We have this glory of this God who loves us in the cross. And we want to share that with others. So we see that pattern in Jesus' life. We see that pattern in Paul's life, and, and we want to pattern our lives that way as well. So the last thing that we'll see is the glory of God's people. And as I said, we're really just going to kind of tease this. We're going to kind of look at some of these uh, kind of main ideas, and then we'll, we'll get more of it as we move along. John 17, 6, he picks up this idea, and he says, I have manifested or shown, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So there's going to be some kind of ideas of separation. If you belong to Jesus, you don't belong to the world. Now we know God loves the world, right? There's a sense in which God loves the world. He loves the whole world. He offers his son. We would, we would affirm that. We see that in John 3. And then there's a sense in which those who remain in the world, which means the system of those following under the uh, leadership of Adam and Eve have said, we don't want to follow you, God. We want to do our own thing. We want to live in sin and rebellion, right? So here he's going to be talking about that separation. There are those who still live in the world system 
who say, I want to still live in rebellion. I don't want to submit to God. I don't want to accept his grace. And then there are those who obey Jesus' word, who trust him and are separated out. And so he's going to be talking about these two categories. And that's hard for us because we want everybody to get along, right? Like we want to blur the lines of boundaries, but there are real boundaries. There are those that don't love Jesus and there are those that do love Jesus. And he's going to hammer this pretty hard. Another thing he's going to point out is that those of us that love Jesus, there's a definiteness to us. There's this idea theologically called definite atonement. The idea is that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually saved us. He didn't just make us savable, right? We weren't like moved into the bucket of we're the people that are now savable. He saved us. And there's a lot of other like, you know, hard to understand philosophical questions that run out of that. And I'd love to talk to you more. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it right now. But if you want to ask me more questions later, we can talk about this more. But I want you to see this, this definiteness of the Father gave these people to me and they are really saved, and they are secure, right? We saw this language earlier of like, nothing can snatch them out of my hand, right? There's a security that we have in our salvation in Christ. So he says, yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, meaning they've trusted you, not meaning they've been perfect, right? Because we keep seeing this with the disciples. Sometimes they're kind of numbskulls that do stupid things. You're like, that makes me feel better, right? I'm stupid too, but they at least trusted Jesus, right? They were like, well, we don't, we don't understand everything, but we're going to follow you, right? And that's kind of like us. We can be a baby Christian. We can be a baby follower. We just trust him, and we stumble along and, and try to go where he goes. And that's what it's talking about here when it says trusting your word. Verse 7, now they know that everything you gave, uh, you've given me is from you. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again, this this phrase sounds a little weird because of the separation. He's emphasizing, I'm calling people out, right? Doesn't mean I hate the world. He's just saying, I'm, I'm talking about these that you've given me. I'm praying for them. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them in your name. What what does in your name mean? He's mentioned that. He's going to mention it more throughout John 17. Uh, It doesn't just mean like the spelling of his name, right, or the sound of his name. It means the priorities of God. We've kind of seen this phrase that appears again and again, how we should pray in Jesus' name. We should pray in the Father's name. This is the idea that we're praying for the will and the glory of God in the influence of God, right? So he's saying your name, your power, your strength here is what is protecting them and guarding them. Keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. So again, he's praying for our oneness together as God's people. We'll talk about that more next week. I just want us to to understand the simple fact that God is glorified in God's people. And, And some of us are like fake God's people, right? We just have to clarify That category exists. This whole category of people in the Old Testament and the New Testament who say they're God's people, but they're not really God's people. And so that adds a lot of confusion in the world, right? But his prayer, and this prayer is being answered, is that those of us who love God really would glorify him. We have this amazing opportunity to go back to um, this glorifying God, imaging God call that Adam and Eve were first given. And that's restored to us through the cross. 
Um, and so I've got this picture here. I want you to think about it in these terms. I don't know if you can see this very well, but we've got some large fish going in one direction and this little baby fish going the other way. What we have to see here is there's an antithesis. There's a, a separation. Uh, the word sanctify is going to be used later. That means to be made holy, to be set apart. Those of us belong to God look different. We do different things. We don't just go along with the normal pattern of this world, but we start walking in a new direction. We by no means claim that we are perfect. None of us are perfect. That's why we need Jesus. But we do start walking in a new direction. And that's what I want you to understand. What we're calling you to as followers of Jesus is to pick up your cross and follow him. Is to count the cost. Is to work against the grain of this world system. Now this gets confusing. We have some amazing benefits because we live on this side of 2,000 years of, of Christian history, right? So there are some things that exist in this world system that are results of Christian influence in the world. We can thank God for them, right? Like Christians invented schools and hospitals and orphanages and things like that, right? So there, there are things that exist in our world system that can be good, that are results, but we have to just understand this general, this general category of we've got to cut against the grain. It's not going to look like everyday normal life. It's not normal. Chris and I were talking about this. He was saying that this is interrupting the flow of our normal life. It's like we need to understand that as followers of Jesus. We're, we're going the other direction. Do, do you see that? You can't just kind of go with the flow, right? It's not like a lazy river of following Jesus, right? Um, maybe that's what Sabbaths are supposed to look like, right? But our everyday life should be a, a sense of kind of going in the other direction, following Jesus in, in hard things that he calls us to. Skip down to verse 17 of chapter 17. And again, we'll look at this more next week. But Jesus says in 1717, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify means make holy. Separate them out in your truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus has sent us. Do you see yourself as a, as a sent one? Part of God's plan for expanding his glory in the world is now Jesus. We saw this last week. Jesus is, is now at the Father's right hand and he's given us the Spirit. And he's now working through his people. God is glorifying himself through his people. His glory is spreading through us as we make radical decisions like husbands and wives loving each other instead of splitting up, right? Like caring for our kids instead of neglecting or abusing them like caring for our neighbors. There, there are radical things that Christians are called to that goes against the flow of normal life. And the stuff we've been talking about, about organizing ourselves as a church, saying, hey, we as a local church, we have this message. We want to share it with the community. We're inviting you to, to sign up, to serve, to get involved because we believe this message is so precious and we believe that God's plan for the world is the local church. That he's working through us to reveal himself as you function in your jobs and in your neighborhoods, and as we function as an organized body of believers, serving together, rowing in the same direction to glorify God. We'll wrap up here. I, I talked at the beginning about how we're, we're seeing this expanding glory just locally and things actually being green in July, right? Like that's a, it's a shocker for us. It's normally a semi-arid place here in the middle of Texas. And Israel is a very similar climate to central Texas semi-arid. Things can grow, but sometimes it's really dry, right? And so there's this prophecy that's made in Ezekiel 
where God prophesies that through the fulfillment of the new covenant, there will be fresh water flowing out of the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. And then that prophecy is picked up in Revelation 22. The very end of our Bibles ends with this picture. That the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy of all honor and all power, His throne in the Holy of Holies is a place now where fresh water flows out. And it paints this picture in Ezekiel of, of where there were dead fish and dead wildlife. Now there's new life. And in Revelation 22, this picture of new trees growing and expanding. I think of this tree that's finally growing so big in my front yard because of the rain. He's saying that's what God is doing in the world. He's expanding His glory through His work on the cross. We get to be a part of that. We get to, to be a part of that stream. As he talked a couple chapters before, right? We get to abide in the vine and be a part of his growth in the world when we pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've called us to yourself, that you have saved us. Not because of the things that we have done, but because you love us. As you said in Deuteronomy 7, 7, you didn't love us because we were so great and so awesome. You loved us because of your love. And so, Father, we, we root our security in the love that you had Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before time began. And we root our love in the rescue mission that you performed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the cross. And because of those two realities, we now have a new identity as your people. So help us to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Help us to grow your glory in our neighborhoods, in this local church, and our families. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.